just a week ago, uh, that a, a 25-year-old uh, Moroccan man uh, who was associated with uh, the terrorist group ISIS hijacked a car in uh, Carcassonne, France. And uh, as he was hijacking that vehicle, uh, he wounded the driver and killed the passenger. And uh, he got in the vehicle and as... Uh, he also saw several police officers coming back from a jog. He opened fire to, uh, into that group and wounded one of them before driving uh, to a nearby town of uh, Trebs, where he ran into uh, a supermarket uh, of about 50 uh, people in, inside uh, shopping. Uh, and uh, as soon as he went in, he immediately shot and killed two other people. The rest of the shoppers scattered, some of them escaping out of the uh, emergency exit, some of them hiding in a meat locker, others hiding throughout the store. Uh, and the, the police soon came and surrounded uh, this supermarket there in France uh, and began negotiations with this man. He wanted uh, another terrorist to be released. He had all of these demands. Uh, and over the course of the negoti negotiations, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Arnaud Beltram who led uh, the team of uh, gendarmes, which is like the, the French elite police forces, or what we would uh, consider our SWAT team. Uh, this lieutenant colonel, uh, who was one of the first to arrive on the scene and in, in command of this team, uh, persuaded the terrorists to, to release a woman that he was holding as a human shield and to instead allow this uh, police officer himself to take her place. And he walked into the supermarket without his gun, but with uh, his cell phone, which he, he placed down on a table and left the line open so that his fellow police officers could hear uh, everything that was taking place in the supermarket. Uh, and uh, the female hostage uh, was allowed to go free. Later on, there were three shots uh, that rang out, and the elite police stormed into the building and shot this terrorist dead. Uh, and they found this lieutenant colonel uh, he had two gunshot wounds and then uh, what would prove to be a fatal knife wound. Uh, he died the following morning in the hospital, leaving uh, his wife widowed, and he was uh, 44 years old. You might have heard uh, about that on, uh, on the news, and such a, such a heroic act would, would lead us to ask what drives people to do something like that. What would lead somebody to, uh, to give themselves in exchange for somebody else, knowing that this terrorist has already killed multiple people? And as a police officer, your fate uh, would not uh, be long in coming. Some might say he was motivated as a police officer by his duty. But to that I would say, yes, part of that would be his duty, but as a police officer, you don't... Uh, that, that duty is not forced upon you. It's something that you choose. It's something that you take on voluntarily. And he, in that, taking on that duty, I'm sure he was motivated by love. A desire to protect others, to, uh, to stand up for truth and justice. See, no one sacrifices themselves apart from love. John 15, 13, Jesus said on the last night with his disciples, he said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
as we come together this evening, we are we're gathered together to remember a sacrifice of somebody on our behalf, the ultimate sacrifice, a sacrifice that will not be equaled uh, either before or after what we will see this evening in human history. We read Mark 15, uh, verses 1 to 39. We, we saw the account of Christ's crucifixion. Now, if you, if you have your Bibles, what I'd like to do is look at some commentary on that crucifixion. Open with me to Romans chapter 5. You can say that all of the New Testament letters are a commentary on the life of Christ. You could say that, uh, that all of them uh, give us more and more insight into who Jesus was and what he accomplished on our behalf. This evening what I'd like to do is look at verses 6 through 8, uh, but before we get there, let's... Uh, Let's take a running start and begin reading in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died, For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Like I said, I want to focus on verses 6, 7, and 8 this evening. Uh, And as we look there, what we will see is that uh, we were in desperate need for a Savior. And it was God's or Christ's atoning death that saved us, and then that was a demonstration of God's love. And we will see in these verses how all of those, our desperate need for a Savior, uh, Christ's righteous life and his death and God's love meet at the cross of Calvary and work to bring us reconciliation with God. First, we will see in verse 6, our desperate need for a Savior. And not only in verse 6, but uh, throughout this passage, there's, there's words that describe our state as sinners. Look at the, the language that Paul uses. He says, while we were still weak, the idea of being helpless, 
of, of being powerless, while we were unable morally and spiritually uh, to act on our own behalf or to save ourselves, Christ acted. At the end of verse 6, we see uh, this, uh, we are referred to as the ungodly, uh, as those who did not treat God as we should. Uh, keep your finger there in Romans 5 and just turn over to, to Romans 1. Romans 1 is going to, to serve Paul's purpose of condemning all of humanity. Now, we are all condemned by these verses, uh, and we see that we are without excuse. Begin reading with me in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that they have been, that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is words that describe each and every one of us. Before we knew Christ, we were ungodly. We did not treat God as our creator. We did not treat him as worthy of all honor and thanks. But we reviled him and rejected him. If we turn back to to Romans 5 and jump down to the middle of verse 8, we see also that we are described as sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning that we have fallen short of what God has called us to. We have missed the mark, each and every one of us. And if the word ungodly describes our relationship and how we have not interacted rightly with God, this term of sinners shows that we have not acted rightly with our fellow man. And we uh, treat both in an ungodly and unrighteous way leading to our condemnation. And then jump down to verse 10. Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were enemies of God. That's why we are in such desperate state. Uh, this, this term enemies, this highlights the battle that we raged against the Holy God. That we did not want Him ruling over us, but we wanted to throw His authority off of us. And, and if we could, we would dethrone God and place ourselves on the throne. That's what we want. That's what Paul is seeing here. He's, he's highlighting our, our desperate need that we wanted nothing to do with God. We wanted to be king. We wanted to be God. This is uh, merely just an echo of what David writes in Psalm 2. If you, if you turn over there briefly. Psalm 2 begins in verse 1. David writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, literally against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But then look at verse 4. This, this rebellion that man is planning, God's not nervous about it. 
He's not worried. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. He, he scoffs at them as, as they rebel. Our rebellion against God is, is hopeless. There's no way we can dethrone God. But in our, in our fallen, sinful state, we, we don't take that into consideration. We just rebel against Him. We make ourselves enemies of God. And we must see how this passage describes us as weak, helpless, uh, as ungodly, as sinners, and as enemies of God, and understand our state uh, before a holy, righteous creator without Christ. That is who we are apart from Jesus. And we must see our desperate need for a Savior, our utter hopelessness apart from Christ. And what we see here is that all, all humanity has rebelled against this holy God who's created us, giving us life, breath, and everything. And we foolishly, sinfully rebelled against our Creator, starting a war that is impossible for us to bring peace to. We rebel against Him, become enemies against Him. There's no way for us to, to make peace in our own strength and in our own wisdom. But before this, this drives us to despair, the weight of it should sink in. But it shouldn't drive us to despair. This is, this is the bad news that sets the stage for the good news. We could not save ourselves. Now, that's what Paul makes it clear here. But because we couldn't, God acted. Our triune God acted on our behalf. If you, if you also see in this passage, what we see is that Christ's atoning death was for the ungodly. Everybody that he just described, you're desperately in need of a Savior, and then look at the Savior that, Christ, that God sends on our behalf. Look at the end of verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ came and died for us on our behalf, in our place. Uh, if you also uh, think of Isaiah 52, uh, 13 through uh, 53, verse 12, it's a very famous passage. Uh, if you turn there with me, I know we're, we're bouncing around a little bit, but this was written 700 years before Jesus. 700 years. Uh, and God made known to Isaiah that his suffering servant, what he would accomplish. Uh, we won't read uh, the entire passage here, but I would encourage you at some point before Sunday, go and read through that. See what Christ experienced. See what God said beforehand Jesus would endure on our behalf. Look with me especially at verses 4, 5, and 6 in Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
If you read that passage, you can't help but notice the bouncing back and forth of uh, the first person uh, plural, we, our, and the third person singular, he. What he endured on our behalf. And ultimately, all of our sin, all of our iniquity was placed upon Jesus when he was on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 begins, it says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was the perfect, righteous, holy one, and God made him the sin bearer. The one who would endure what sin deserves. What does sin deserve? Wrath, punishment, and an, an eternal punishment. That is what we deserve. And upon the cross, Christ became the sin bearer and endured the wrath of God on, in our place. But some of you may be saying, hey, we read Mark 15. I didn't see any mention of the wrath of God in there. Right? There was, I didn't hear that as, as it was being read. So where does the wrath of God come into the, into the crucifixion? We'll, we'll jump back over to, to Mark's Gospel. The wrath of God was pointed to, albeit in a, in a veiled but also clear way. Mark 15, verse 33. Something that is echoed also in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. Mark 15.33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So here you have Jesus on the cross from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. And at noon, something dramatic happens. Something amazing happens. Darkness covers the land for three hours. How frequently does that happen? That in the middle of the day, Luke, in Luke's Gospel, it says that the sun's light failed. How does that happen? How does, how does darkness come upon a land in the middle of the day? Well, darkness is, is often the indicator. It's, it's a mark of God's presence. There was another mountain that, that the darkness of God, the glory of God, came down upon in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai. Listen to Deuteronomy 4. This is what Moses says as he's, as he's reminding the Israelites about what God commanded them at Mount Sinai. He says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. See, when darkness comes upon the land in the middle of the day, when God the Son is hanging on the cross, it's because He is silently enduring the wrath of God that we deserved. And at the end of those three hours of darkness, that darkness had a definitive beginning point and a definitive end point. At the end of those three hours of darkness, what did Jesus cry out? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out in that way and experienced what he experienced so that we would never have to. He cried that out so that we would never be in need of asking God, why have you forsaken me? Christ experienced on the cross what you and I should have experienced for eternity. And this sacrifice on our behalf, this death that endured the wrath of God and paid the penalty for our sin, shows the greatness of God's love for us. That's the, that's the flow of Paul's argument here. As, you, as we turn back to, to Romans 5, as we look at the, the next verses, verses 7 and 8, we see uh, that, that we had a desperate need for a Savior, that Christ's death uh, was our atonement, and ultimately, what we see finally in this passage, in verse 8, is that God's great love for sinners, in verses 7 and 8. And the, the flow of Paul's logic, uh, he's, he's going to, to hold up the cross of Christ as the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. And Paul's going to, to enlarge our understanding, to show us the, the height, the, the, the width, and the, the breadth of it by pointing and comparing it to what a human being might do for somebody else. He says, hey, one will, will scarcely die for a righteous person. Uh, hey, on, on rare occasions, one person might, might die for somebody else if they're righteous. Then he continues, if, uh, and though perhaps uh, it's possible for a good person, or, or that one would even dare even to die for a good person, just hypothetically speaking, it, it's possible, it could happen, that somebody would give their life in love for somebody else who is good or who is righteous. But God's love is so much greater. So much greater. And it's amazing that on a, on a human level, this concept of giving your life for somebody else across all human history, across all cultures, is seen as a loving and heroic act. The man that I mentioned at the beginning, Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram, this past Wednesday, there was a national funeral for him in France. The president of France led the funeral. How often does that happen? How often is, is a coffin carried through the streets of Paris by men in uniform before being laid to rest? They show honor and respect and thanks for what this man did because they acknowledge that it was heroic, that it was loving, that it was beyond kind, that this demonstration was absolutely amazing, and they acknowledge that. And yet that pales in comparison to what Christ has done for us. Twice in these verses, uh, we see, uh, the, or this phrase of while we were. We see it in verse 6, we see it in verse 8, and then we see it a third time in verse 10. Of while we were weak, while we were sinners. Then in verse 10, while we were enemies. Christ didn't die for those who were good or those who were righteous. We weren't any of that. He died for the ungodly, the weak, the sinner, the, those who were his enemies the enemies of his Father, Christ, died for us. 
That's what we see. He wasn't dying for people who loved him. He was dying for people who hated him. That's how we were, enemies of God. That's why this, this passage is so amazing when you think about it. That we were, we were making no movements towards God. We hated him. But in the middle of our hatred, in the middle of our rebellion, God sends his son. says, hey, son, go pay the penalty for their sin. Those who are in rebellion against me, I will redeem them. I will save them. And I'm going to do it through your sacrifice. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did God need to give his son? Because we couldn't save ourselves. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9 say this, And and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Those verses describe all of us. We were under the influence of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We were uh, walking in the, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. The verses 1, 2, and 3 describe us so accurately, but then the amazing part, verse 4 begins like this. But God... Despite all of our sin, despite all of our rebellion against him, God chose to act. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." This is what Christ has done for us. This is what he endured on our behalf. As I was just doing some, some personal reading uh, in the, the weeks leading up to today and uh, Sunday, uh, as I was reading something, this author caught my attention. And he pointed out two, two scriptural truths. One of them uh, was that uh, in Isaiah 52, the end there, part of the servant song, it says that, that Jesus' faith was, was marred beyond recognition. Like no one else in history's faith was marred, uh, which is pretty amazing to think about. Basically, if Jesus' head wasn't attached to his body, you wouldn't have known that it was a, that it was a human face. And that's how marred it was. And yet, at the same time, not one of Jesus' bones was broken. Right, so, so how is it, how can someone come to this point of not being able to be recognized and yet not one of his bro- bones is broken? He didn't have one facial fracture. 
What did he endure on the cross that would have twisted and contorted his face in such a way that he would be unrecognizable? Yes, he was beaten and scourged, and that would have made an impact upon his appearance, but even more so, what would have weighed on him even more was the the wrath of God that he endured for us. And we need to think about that and, and dwell upon that and understand what Jesus has done for us. And if you, if you have responded to this, because these are just facts, this is what Jesus has done, and now everybody is called to respond to what Christ has done. God calls us to respond in faith, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting to continue in our rebellion and something will be unique and different about us, that we'll be able to escape the judgment of God for our sins, God says, instead, I sent my son, now believe in him. Look to him in faith. Look at all that Jesus has done for you. Continue to think about the life that was given. If you were that woman in France who was exchanged for that lieutenant colonel, would you ever forget that day? Would you ever forget those, those moments when you realized that you were going to be set free and he was coming to take your place? That would, forever, it would be a moment that would forever rest in your memory and I, I dare say it would change the way that you live from that point forward. That is what Christ's sacrifice is to be for us. And may we truly understand not only his atoning death, but but the demonstration of God's love that the cross was. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And greater love the world has never seen than Jesus laying his life down for sinners. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you, acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging our ungodliness, acknowledging our weakness. Lord, we were your enemies. We were at war against you, raging against your authority. Lord, we did not want to acknowledge you as our creator. We did not want to give you thanks. We did not want to worship you. Lord, we acknowledge our sinfulness. And we are deeply amazed that in the middle of our sinfulness, while we were yet sinners, your love acted upon us. That you sent your Son to die on our behalf. While we hated you, you sent your Son in love. Lord, may that sink deep within our hearts and minds. And may we continue evermore to thank you and praise you for the love that you showed to us by sending your Son in our place to experience your wrath. And Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for becoming sin. Lord Jesus, you were perfect. 
Not a spot on your record, and yet you became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for enduring the cross, for enduring the wrath that was for us. What love, Lord. We thank you. We praise you and we lift up all these things in worship in your precious and holy name. Amen.